Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
There's never been a black cop in this city. We think you might be the man to open things up around here. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Black Klansman is over. Are uh, you ready for us to talk about it? For the white race. With the right white man, we can do anything. When's the last time they let a rookie lead an investigation? Oh, that's right. Never. <laughs> okay. Become his friend. Let's get invited back. So what kind of stuff you guys do? Cross burdens, marches. This is fixing to be a big year for us. You ask too many questions. You undercover or something? This is it, Andy. This is the very last of our uh, Spike Lee movie. Clearly, er, Spike Lee retrospective. And clearly that means that there are no other Spike Lee movies worth talking about. Would you agree? You know, the series was way too short. I'm just getting into it. <sighs> And we're already leaving. This is this is the curse of deciding. You know what? Let's do a run of short series since we've yeah, had we a few we were really being, beefy, so pragmatic. Long ones. <laughs> <laughs> we picked the wrong filmmaker to do a short series. I think that is the I real issue. So far, we've learned that with all of these series, all of French them. French <laughs> films. I want more. Spike Lee. I want more. Makes it tough. Yeah. Makes it tough. You know what? All it does is give us agree. give us good things to come back to. That's right. That's right. And so we shall come back definitely to Spike Lee. Here we are, his most uh, most recent film, uh, Black Klansman, 2018. Is that what I said? 2018. I'm going to stick with that. There you go. Uh, this is uh, based on the biography and the story of Ron Stallworth, a former uh, police officer, detective with the Colorado Springs Police Department, uh, happened in uh, really over the course of cataloged his brief or, or his brief entry to the force and then his career over the course of a couple of years infiltrating going undercover with a local upcoming Ku Klux Klan chapter in Colorado Springs uh, as a CSPD officer it is um, it's a fascinating story it comes with the Spike Lee baggage can we call it that well, I think by this time, I think it's fair to say that Spike Lee does bring a little bit to each of his projects. Some people love it. Some people hate it. But there's always a little bit of something in the films. I'm I'm going to guess that you are one that, that loved this movie. I just I think you are. Well, I feel like we've talked about it before, so it's not much of a giveaway. But yes, you would be right. What I want you to say is surprising. Everyone, yes, I'm right, Pete. You're incredibly astute. Wow, you you know me are reading so well. my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm practically a mentalist, is what I wanted to hear. And <laughs> You're not so I ask you, you this: are. You are. <laughs> the Spike Lee uh, messaging baggage. Uh, what do you think of it in this film? Because I think it, it's weird. I feel weird to say this. The 
bamboozled messaging, particularly the opening and the closing of bamboozled, that are really the the sandwich of Spike Lee goodness and intensity. Uh, in this movie, that sandwich is maybe more intense than some of his past movies. And I'm wondering if you feel like his messaging uh, hurts the film at all. Well, that's that's a really interesting thing to discuss in context of this particular film, because this is a biopic. This is a story of the a true story of this police officer, uh, African-American police officer in Colorado Springs, who did infiltrate the, the Ku Klux Klan chapter that was there. And so when Spike Lee comes onto a project, uh, a biopic telling somebody's true life story, and then introduces kind of some of the Spike Lee messaging, is there a conflict? And it's interesting because I think in context, I think it really ends up being something that you have to take in context of the story being told. In this very particular case of Ron Stallworth and his uh, delving into this uh, this chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in order to bring it down, I think it very much relates to Lee's messaging. And to that end, I think he was absolutely the right director to bring on to this project because he has a point of view that fits very much in line with kind of Stallworth's view. And so I felt that the messaging really made sense. And I think that there may be times where I feel like if you throw messaging into a biopic, it could perhaps spin the story in a direction that it wasn't necessarily leaning toward. In this particular case, however, I don't think that's the case. I think his messaging, Stallworth's story, come together and work really brilliantly almost they're creating a synergy as it moves forward to tell this story in a way that i think uh, elevates both i i think the sledgehammer of the spike lee messaging in this movie and i think most of it is fine for me i i think that most of the movie i really am i'm right in tune with but the real sledgehammer comes at the end and this is kind of a thing that he does uh, and in this case it's just over and over and over it is the media at the time it's charlottesville it is the the stories of tragedy and conflict as the white supremacist movement uh, comes head to head face to face with those who disagree right in these uh, communities and marches and protests and uh, the violence that has ensued. And he has cherry picked a lot of the most violent stuff uh, and put it at the end, just one after another and Trump messaging and political messaging. And it is um, it is very heavy, uh, I, I think. I, I think it is heavier than me- the messaging that we've seen in, in prior movies. And I wonder, I, I find myself deeply moved by that sequence. I have been reading comments of those in our community and beyond that disagree with me, that find that that last sequence is the thing that turns them off, that is not going to age well, that is too heavy handed, that is spike going overboard. Once again, it's too much. And uh, I'm wondering if I'm in a spike uh, reality uh, distortion field. Uh, or if if maybe I'm on the, the wrong side of creative history, is this going to be one of those things that really doesn't age well uh, because it's him just being too provocative? Is there such a thing for Spike Lee? Artists provoke. That's what they do. Uh, sometimes it is too much. Sometimes it uh, might be too little. In this particular case, 
you know, I don't see the argument that it doesn't fit in with this story. Everything that we see in context of both the the bookends, seeing Gone with the Wind at the start of the film, even the kind of the odd little KKK uh, PSA that we have featuring Alec Baldwin at the beginning, Weird. yeah, all of that fits in kind of telling, kind of setting us up for the place that this story is in and the way that that you know society has portrayed these relationships and everything i think all of that starts us off ending with this footage comes from a a place of this story that is about this kind of subversive organization that is still here it has not left People might think that the KKK has ended, but we're seeing it in this film. And this is something that Ron Stallworth saw and did something about at the time in Colorado Springs. But we even have a conversation with one of his, uh, I think it's his chief, about how naive he is, thinking that people like David Duke are, uh, who are kind of setting up a plan to portray themselves in a different light to move into the political world so that they can get more uh, of a position and a stronghold in the government. And like the film is inevitably going to everything we see at the end, I think, you know, we have uh, exactly what they're talking about in the film happening and it's all portrayed right there. And I think you get that uh, very clearly with the way that you see the, the double dolly as uh, the hero of our story and his girlfriend move down the hallway after having a knock on the door to see a burning cross. You see the KKK out there, and it leads right into everything that that we're witnessing in the real world today. I don't think that this is not something that ages one way or another. I think it fits in incredibly well, and it's very telling that uh, that Spike chose to use that stuff because it's just it's the the exclamation point on the end of this sentence that he just put together here. It's 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 part of the story, and I don't think it's there. I think you can have the story without, but I think it's a great way to emphasize the realities of everything that he we we're just exploring in the film. Well, I think that's the, exactly the case I was hoping you would make, especially the way that Spike transitions. Like you mentioned the double dolly shot, the way he transitions from the world of the movie to the world of uh, the of, of mass media right now by way of this burning cross is I think particularly uh, it, it is both grotesque and elegant at the same time, right? It is this thing that that makes a transition to my reality from his reality so real, right? So tangible. It is not, to me, disconnected. And, and that, I think, is what I am reading people, you know, and, and their perspectives, that this is just had, tagged on at the end. I don't see it that way. I see it, as you just described, this is a, a transformation. It is a demonstration of continuity, of continuity from 1978-79 to 2018-2019 to, pres- to our present day. And, and in that regard, I actually think, uh, I, I, I think it will age well. It will become a historical document of this period in, in time, and I think it will be a powerful one. 
Well, and, and and I just think the messaging is there throughout, and it clearly ties in in a very big way. I think it all yeah. absolutely fits. And yeah. I think this is one of those films that, like the last two that we have talked about, do the right thing. Black uh, uh, bamboozled. Uh, watch this one in 10, 20, 30 years, it's probably going to feel as relevant. Uh, I, I'd like to say that I, I like that society might have grown and, and improved. I, I certainly hope so, but it still will feel like a very relevant story. You know, I, I just think that uh, I don't think it's going to age poorly. Well, let's talk about the front end then. So if the back end, you and I seem to agree that it is an elegant demonstration, it's all good. The front end, uh, if you've never seen the film, it might feel a little um, disheveled. Uh, It might be the word for it. It opens with that shot from that one movie, you know, Gone with the Wind. uh, And it is uh, the crane shot that goes all the way up and shows the uh, decimation of the uh, soldiers lying across the town main street right and uh it's pretty it it's uh it, it is a, a beautifully and artfully done shot but it is um it's an interesting thing to start a movie like this with it brings us it, the big shot that you're talking about is a beautiful shot starting on on our heroine and pulls back to reveal all of the injured soldiers from the war we get that mm-hmm. beautiful uh, the crane shot that goes up turns into a big shot and then it pulls right in front of the confederate flag and we see the big confederate flag yeah. flowing right there over all of this and then we move to alec baldwin and he is playing a character by the name of dr kennebrew beauregard and he's very frustrated you know, what an odd little PSA that we have here. I mean, I, I loved seeing him. It was, I was thrown a little bit initially seeing Alec Baldwin pop up. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know who's in the film. Um, I, I don't know what to expect. And and sometimes when you throw a character or an actor like him into like a biopic, especially when it is like a cameo, as it seemed to be, it can throw you a little bit. But then Spike Lee does this whole thing where it's like, Okay, we're we're hearing Alec Baldwin do this this racist speech and uh, kind of doing it, getting ready for a presentation, and then all of a sudden he's like flubbing his lines, and the camera work keeps changing. We get these interesting color treatments over things. His character is talking to people off screen, and it was a very interesting way to kind of set this whole thing up in a very uh, behind the scenes sort of way. It takes, uh, and this is, I think, something that is very key to a lot of the stuff that goes on in this film, is this whole idea that Mel Brooks explored, which we talked about when we looked at the producers, when you use comedy to kind of take the steam out of these these horrible, horrible um, antagonists that have done devastating things in society. Now we're doing kind of the same thing with this, this character. In the middle of his speech, we keep interrupting it with all these things, and it's hard to really take the speech seriously because this guy can't even get through it. And I felt like it was Spike Lee giving us a hint that this is going to be the tone of this film. We're going to look at these guys. We're going to portray them, take the steam out with some comedy. It's going to be seen as a little silly. And that's how we're going to approach it. I thought it was a really smart way to begin. 
I do too, particularly as Baldwin falls apart, right? As our good doctor uh, has more and more trouble getting through the words that he needs to say on this PSA uh, and keeps calling for lines. He gets funnier and funnier. It's Alec Baldwin. We're familiar with his sort of cultural identity as the straight man. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, I think it it's it works very, very well. Then we move into our, our principal story, right? So we've set the stage with the Confederate soldiers that have been slaughtered in Atlanta and we've we move through history right we have that and then we move to I think the PSA is what do you think 1950s it feels 50s ish yeah right so we go from 1939 to 1950s and now we're in the 1970s and we meet uh, Ron Stallworth right again it makes for a beautiful little uh, timeline of here is the state of pro-segregationist white supremacist from the early 1900s through to today, we're going to stop for a little bit and we're going to tell this story of Stallworth and then we're going to continue the timeline at the end of the movie. And I think architecturally it works. It, it's You just tie it up with a little bow. I think it's perfect. Well, and again, in context of the story that we're telling, it really all makes sense. It, everything mm-hmm. ties together just very nicely. I, I don't find, I, I don't know, I guess I find um complaints about the structure of it uh to be you know i i don't feel it makes sense because i feel like the structure is very smartly constructed in a very deliberate way right all right so how would you like to talk about uh our fair city colorado springs well how would you like to talk about colorado springs you're from there well i'm very fond of the place <laughs> i'm very fond of the place i i got there in uh, just as this thing was ending um, I, I got to Colorado Springs in 1979, and we literally missed at, at the end of the movie. You don't you don't quite see this, right? You see David Duke kind of being shuttled around, uh, but what happened? for you know to the community was david duke ends up going to krdo tv for an interview and then he goes over to KKTV for an interview and he's just shuttled around and there are um constant protests at these tv stations and it ended up being more than a blip on the cultural history of colorado springs because this was a new effort this was an effort to bring the kkk to colorado springs in and colorado springs is also a you know it's a incredibly diverse town. Uh, It's a place with a lot of military, and what comes with a lot of military are a lot of very diverse opinions and perspectives and, and, uh, you know, historical worldviews. And I, I think that poses a challenge on any community. Uh, The fact that the Colorado Springs Police Department had heretofore never hired uh, a black police officer is of note at this time, right? This confluence of of elements. The KKK is coming around. There are no black police officers who have any sort of perspective. There are definitely racist tendencies in the police force, uh, and uh, there are efforts to attempt to stamp those out um, uh, it, and educate the community, right? It's just a, a a tumultuous time. But I don't think you can call Colorado Springs different than any other growing community that is of such a diverse population. Um, and and so it's I don't think it's unique in any way. And Ron Stallworth was a go- Colorado Springs guy. Like, he just wanted to be a cop. And so he joined a program that was designed to recruit minority officers that had been running for four years, from 60 
68 to 72 before he actually applied that had only hired. It was designed to recruit specifically black officers, and it had only recruited two Mexicans and a Puerto Rican in, <laughs> in four years. So he is the first black man to attempt to even get hired by the police department. So uh, he worked in the wreckage room as a civilian. He worked his way up. He finally was sworn in as an officer in 1975, 76, and worked his way into the detective service. Uh, so that leads us to the story, because a lot of the story in the movie, as it was told, obviously does what movies need to do and, and compresses time. And, and I think structurally, we get a sense that he comes onto the force, he's doing all this great stuff, um, and it happens very, very quickly that he is needed and recruited into the de detective service uh, when, in fact, he was already a detective. And, uh, you know, by the time he was a detective, uh, Flip, the character that is is named Flip, uh, Adam Driver's character, hadn't even been hired on the police force when, when uh, you know, our, our Ron actually became a police officer. So some of those things have been moved around and, and taken license uh, from reality. But largely, it, it tells the story very quickly to get us all up to speed and leave us with a sense of that fish-out-of-water sensation of Ron being the new guy for cinematic purposes. But I think overall, it works pretty well. Yeah, I think definitely it works. I mean, it it moves into the whole story pretty quickly, but that's because our story is not Ron Stallworth and his right. career with the Colorado Springs Police Department. It is very specifically about this situation that he creates by you know seeing this number in the paper and calling it and kind of creating this relationship with the local KKK chapter and deciding to infiltrate it and that's really what our story is i think that uh you know it it you know i i don't see any question as to that it, it yeah. the story is what the story is it's ron stallworth a police officer who decides to do this yeah, absolutely. And and it's a guy who made an on-the-job flub, a, a noted error as an undercover investigator by answering the phone and using his real name to get information from the Klan. And that is the principal inciting incident that starts everything here. It starts the, we need two Ron Stallworths, we need a white Ron Stallworth, and a black Ron Stallworth. We need a voice and a body. And, and uh, you know, none of what happens would have happened the way it happened had he actually been able to to uh, to keep his wits about him when he was on the phone and not use his real name. That's legit. That's how the story goes. And reading the book and hearing him talk about it, it is it's laugh worthy because he's laughing about it now. Right. Enough time has gone by that he realizes what an incredible infraction he he <laughs> made. Like, it's just a ridiculous thing that he did. And and um, that created a heck of a story. So that gets us into the movement of the movie. It really does. It really does. And what I think is smart, speaking of just how we get into the movement of the movie, is how he really kind of moves into his role as a detective by setting up this story about the police department being concerned about this Black Panther rally that is happening mm -hmm. because the the local, uh, what is it, the African-American student group or the, the Colorado College Black Student Union Black Student Union yeah they bring uh, somebody to speak a member of the 
uh, of Stokely the, Carmichael, uh, Stokely yeah. Carmichael, a member of the Black Panther, uh, Black Panthers, to come and speak. And the police department is concerned that it could result in something a little bigger, so they send him. And I think what an interesting way to kind of set up the tone of this film to balance it with this, the Black Panther meeting and the Black Student Union as we uh, see it embodied by Patrice, the, the woman that he meets at the helm of it, and how that balances out with us moving into the next part of the story with the KKK. And then through the course of the story, we're really getting to see this balance between the viewpoints between the two sides. I thought that was an incredibly smart way to structure the script where we get to see both sides and the you know potential concerns with the two of them and which one is the one that is the problem, which is the one we should be worried about. What an interesting way to kind of set all that up for us. Well, and how beautifully and consistently the film sticks with that parallelism to the very end, to to the climactic moments of the film, right? His swearing in as a, a Ku Klux Klan member and having both of the Ron Stallworths at that meeting in the same room at the same time uh, as we get this story uh, being told, uh, this horrific story being told of uh, the prior race riots that are going on at the student union meeting, the Black Panthers meeting, I guess, is that where we were? It, th- yeah, it's so, where Harry Belafonte's character Harry Belafonte, yeah. is, is recounting the lynching of Jesse Washington and how we're intercutting that telling with the ceremony that's going on. Yeah. One of the most effective uses of editing I've seen in a while, just the way that we blend these two meetings and how how heartbreaking and peaceful the one meeting is as as Belafonte is recounting this story with just kind of the sickening uh kind of false uh religious tones that this this other meeting is taking as they go into the kind of, kind of the I was going to do something about you know the men in funny hats behind closed doors but they are really men in funny hats it's just a different yeah. kind of funny hat but yeah you know yeah. what i mean yeah it is i mean i like that you you talk about this false religious ceremony it's I, I the the word that hits me is like manufactured right we have to manufacture uh a a sort of heart for the organization in order to really tie into you know the the fears and the the anger that that frustrates those who have have joined it and and i i feel like that is a uh, this that sequence is one that really dives into visually semantically the manufactured religion that that does that for people that that connects to that part of their hearts and and you know ties them into it and i think you know i, I think he's just the way he uses the camera the way he uses these the the you know characters especially duke as he's looking up at in in sort of reverence and prayer and then comes down and starts using the language of of segregation and hate and fear uh is is haunting and uh incredibly powerful not only that, but then we also get to watch them watching Birth of a Nation and yeah. seeing that also kind of interacting or intercutting with the uh, more of the kind of the recounting of this story and just how how they're reacting to the film and so celebratory. And I mean, I've seen Birth of a Nation. It is a very interesting film in context of film history and uh, the work that D.W. Griffith did 
is, I mean, it, it can't be denied that there is an important element of the filmmaking that D.W. Griffith was doing at the turn of the century and how he really evolved the medium. But, I mean, it is a really racist film. It really is. And to see the the way that the group watching it reacts to it and is just, you know, catcalling and especially Felix's wife. I mean, just everything that was she going on. She might be on. the most terrifying feature in this oh, film. Wow, right? I tell of you. Everything they do, she is the one that that uh, that I think haunts me the most. One of these days, you're going to need me for something mm. and I'll be in here. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, it, it, she's just watching her watch that movie and the way she calls out and, and, and cries out for more violence and get her, get her. I mean, it's it's the scariest stuff. It really is. Uh, yeah. The there the film does some really interesting things in terms of just the way it's it's presented visually around people watching other things right and and we're talking about the uh, birth of a nation sequence which is very powerful the other I think is actually back at the student union earlier in the film when we're watching Stokely Carmichael speak uh, Kwame. Um, he, this is where he changed his name and I have forgotten it Kwame Ture speak right we're we're watching him uh, and. Spike starts doing these things with the faces. Okay, so what we're seeing is as as Kwame is speaking and and kind of speaking his points to this crowd, we have a crowd of college students who are enraptured with the message that he has. And so we're we're looking at a you know the the shadowy dark black of the of the kind of the auditorium and we're bringing up what Spike Lee is doing is he is bringing up face after face in the darkness. So you're seeing this this black screen and then a face kind of appears from it. And it's just the face. Everything else else is like matted out of the screen. So you only get just the face and you and there'll be sometimes one or two or three or more on the screen kind of coming in and out. And you just see these faces looking and listening. And it I found it to be incredibly effective because one, he's giving this message and it shows how uh, how attentive they are. Two, it's showing how peaceful this this whole rally is. It's just it's peaceful, it's informative, it's something where people are taking something away from. Three, he's talking about the beauty of being black and you're looking at all these beautiful black faces. It was I just found it to be such an effective way to get all of this across in a way that I hadn't seen Lee do before, just watching the faces kind of coming in and out. It was incredibly effective. I thought so too. And it reminded me of the sequence in Bamboozled that I thought was so powerful, the, you know, creating of the blackface experience. The way Jada Pinkett Smith did the voiceover and we we watched as she described what they were doing. This was that same it felt like that same sort of visual tool set that he was applying here, that we're looking at the faces in the audience and we're watching this powerful speech and it is an inciting speech, but there is no sensation of incitement in the audience. There is, uh, it's an activating speech, but you don't get the feeling that anybody is being activated to violence at all. And, and in fact, we have that recall later where they're talking about how it just doesn't feel like this thing is going to go very far. These guys are just, you know, they're, they feel very passionately. They're targeted anger, that kind of a thing. Thing. Um, but this felt so sort of documentarian. I felt like I was moving from uh, a Spike Lee joint into a Ken Burns film, you know, yeah. uh, that that we're we're watching 
you know, the voice was, it, it went on long enough that it felt like a meditation. And, and I, I, again, it's one of those things that helps me as the white guy watching this movie transcend that experience and be able to sort of get into uh, the the sort of shared experience of being a part of this movie. And and um, I thought it was incredibly powerful. And, and I think goes to... Um, the the deep well, the deep emotional well of the film that comes in contrast to some of the lighter moments, the comedic moments. And uh, that balance, I think, is also uh, he's walking a very fine line. Uh, you know, what do you think of, of his use of comedy here? It's it's really interesting because I, I would think that taking a, a police story like this is where you have an officer, an officer infiltrating the KKK and trying to bring it down. That doesn't strike me immediately as a funny sort of film. It feels like a Mississippi burning type of story that is pretty serious, you know, serious in its telling. What I think that Lee is doing, one, we already talked about kind of the opening and how there's comedy already built into it. And I think he's using the comedy to take the steam out of the KKK. But I think also... We have to acknowledge the whole fact that this happened. It sounds like a comedy. The fact that this black police officer called the KKK, gave them his name, and then basically became a member of the KKK. He had the little membership card and everything. It's an absurd story anyway. And so I think that they're they're finding the comedic tones throughout in whatever capacity they can to bring that comedy forward because by nature it is kind of this I can't even believe it happened absurd story and I think that that ends up helping the tone it it balances the realities of the absurdity we're getting with kind of the the darkness that we're also getting through you know what this group is trying to accomplish Absolutely. Absolutely. The thing that I that moved me the most in my experience with this movie, and I just since I didn't say it, I did read the book uh, over the last two days. And uh, I just wanted to I couldn't believe so many of the things in the movie. I just felt (laughs) ridiculous. It felt like, okay, Spike, what are you doing? You've taken this poor guy and you've manufactured this story of his. It doesn't, it, it, this would never happen. I I get what you're trying to say about some of these guys in the KKK, but no one is that stupid, right? That's, that's where I left the first time I watched this movie. So I read the book and you know what, Andy? There are some people who are that stupid. That's the <laughs> bottom line. I was deeply moved by how close the book is to the uh, the movie experience and I, I mean if you if you had to cherry pick some of your favorites some of your favorite like forehead slapping uh moments of the movie just go ahead let me let me have it what do you think might have been on the line of manufactured by spike oh man i mean so many of the different uh little things that the that they are kind of doing and saying at the at the clan rallies and just like the way that they're behaving and just the the nonsense i mean some of the stuff like the fact that okay are they really putting up uh you know these uh you know african american shaped 
uh, targets out in the forest to be shooting. You know, that seemed, I was like, well, I can almost buy it, but I also was like, well, what if somebody comes across that? It seems, you know, pretty dangerous to put that sort of thing. And then they leave, it's sitting there. I was like, that that seemed a little... Uh, okay, I'm gonna far-fetched. I'm gonna give you that one. You start with the first one. He doesn't talk anything about that. I don't know if it happened or didn't. Oh, okay. So that one, he didn't yeah. talk anything about that. But from the Stallworth perspective, uh, th- there were some things in there that I thought were just. I mean, it starts at the very beginning when he's talking to uh, you know Felix on the phone, uh, and and starts talking about I hate everybody, and he goes into that <laughs> litany of things that's taken straight from. His book, like, I mean, all the the whole thing, that whole speech is how he got into the KKK straight from his book all the way to the very end. And this was the one that was the big question for me is, are you serious? Did he actually did they get both of these guys in the room with David Duke at the same time? And did he get the picture? I was wondering about the picture. Yeah, absolutely happened. It absolutely happened. He was the bodyguard for David Duke that day. He was the guy. And we also had other Ron Stallworth there. In the book, his name is Chuck. They never release his actual name because he is he was an undercover detective and they didn't. Yeah, they still he's still is he's un- still unidentified. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh and and so uh yes, he was there and they took the picture and he has it, and David Duke was very upset. The sequence where he tells off David Duke, he says, Are uh, you sure? Right at the very yeah. end, the ring phone. That happened but out of order. It actually happened earlier in the overall story, like a year before, and uh, it it was not played as that kind of a joke. Like it was, uh, but the, the, the scripted element uh, is as he tells it. So uh, I was fascinated by those things because they felt so sort of comedically manipulative, but they were taken as gospel from the story. Now, what is not in alignment with the story, right, is the the big climactic chase through Colorado Springs. That okay, did not sure. that did not happen. And in fact, the things that he is most proud about of the the work that he and the team did um, ultimately in Colorado Springs are the things like stopping all of the cross burnings. There wasn't a single cross burning for two years. Like they they were able to stop all of those things. They stopped any exchange of weapons. They stopped. They did get it turns out those two guys uh, that were military guys. That is a legit story. And one day a federal officer and team comes and gets Ron and and they talk about how they, these two guys were actually charged with tracking uh, nuclear codes inside of NORAD. Right, North American Radar Defense uh, Command inside of Cheyenne Mountain. These were central guys or, or at least senior officials in charge of senior official stuff inside of, of NORAD and Space Command. So they were ousted as a result of the work that Stallworth and, and Flip or Chuck did uh, in this work. So those are the things he's very proud of. Was there a central chase? Was there a wife that was actually brought down and tackled and and arrest him? He tried to rape me kind of scene in the streets. That that didn't happen. That was strictly for the movie. Uh, and uh, I, I got to say, given all of what Spike took from the book and presented, you know, largely accurately, I I forgive it some of those, the, or at least that sequence at the end. I forgive that. Um, 
because I think overall the the movie has its heart in the right place in terms of the original material. Well, and it's an adaptation. I mean, when right. is an adaptation not adapting things in context of trying yeah. to fit it to tell a better story? I mean, Social Network does it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure Malcolm X did it. Apollo 13. Right, right, Everything right, is yeah. going to, you know, find a way to fit it better into the context of a storytelling in cinema. Well, and I would just say that I tend to be somebody who complains about that crap. Like when they don't, yes, and are. I complained a lot about the social network. It still pisses me off. I'm sorry that one. That one was grievous. I, the movie was fantastic, but the adaptation itself was frustrating. So this one, I give it a little bit more grace. It feels like it's uh, they did it did a good job. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think if you look at kind of the elements that are called historically inaccurate. It's uh, it's mostly just around that the kind of that whole additional plot element at the end to kind of spin things up a little more. Yep. So it's really not a huge thing. And it, uh, oh, and Patrice, I mean that character is fictionalized, but mm-hmm. it all works in context of the story. I think it fits really nicely, and uh, you know, it's I, I think it's still. Uh, oh, and I should say there was a bomb plot that was actually uh, done by the KKK that did inspire that part of the story. Yep. So it's not like yeah. they just fictionalized something that the KKK would never go out and do. No, no, no. And in fact, there was a lot of weapons movement in in and around all of these stories, right? This was, there was a lot of C4 discussion. There's a lot, I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, it, it, it happened. It just didn't happen this one time with this one woman who didn't exist. Over the last few shows and last few series, we have brought tropes into the conversation quite a bit because in cinema, there are tropes that pop up quite a bit. We noticed a lot when we did our Colin Hagen series. There certainly were some that popped up in our French crime film series and even Spike Lee, we've seen some tropes. And I just couldn't get past the trope that we had here where when this you is, have an, this is the one trope to rule them all in this, trope corner. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there will be <laughs> more. It? There are always more tropes. <laughs> Uh, this is the trope when you have an undercover person, there has to be that one person who always remains suspicious. And then, of course, the, that one character in this particular film is then also the one to figure it all out, but not quite in time to actually, you know, kind of close that chapter on that part of the story. Okay, so where does that where does that let you down? It doesn't let me down. I'm just saying it's a trope that is used here, but I, I don't think it's used yeah. poorly. I mean, I think it's interesting, and it, it it makes sense because I mean, I I think by nature, you know, when you have these covert secret organizations, it makes sense for people to be suspicious. In fact, if anything, I felt like Felix probably made more sense to me than than Walter did, who was yeah. Awfully trusting, you know, right out of the gate. But yeah. again, it happened. So, you know, that's just the way that these things happen sometimes. Yeah. I, I didn't get the sense from the book that Felix was that character that was that was as suspicious as maybe he was in the movie. I think from the movie movie perspective, this is where um, Felix feels one dimensional to me. Right. That we keep coming back to that particular trope. Over and over and over again. And I know it's a cinematic tool. It's a tool to move the narrative forward. It's a tool to build conflict and intensity. I get all of that. And also, uh, it, uh, I just, I just wonder if there's a little bit more sort of 
uh, dynamism in in that relationship that maybe we could have we could have moved through it and then come back to it or something. I mean, it just felt like we kept going back to that same well every time, and uh, that didn't even let up really when we had this uh, this new relationship with David Duke. Who I mean, have you looked at at pictures of D- David Duke circa 1978? I haven't. I, I I only saw the clips of David Duke that we have at the end of yeah. this particular film in context of of the you know all the it's, awful stuff that happened. But yes, I haven't. I'm seen serious, him. man. It's Topher Grace. That's I'm sorry, Topher Grace, that you are David Duke, circa 1978. It is the spitting image. Oh, you're right. I'm looking right now. Right. It is yep. uncanny. It is eerily reminiscent of that guy. I think he did a a terrific job. And I think their relationship and really, you know, latching into, if anything, they made David Duke a boob in areas where David Duke was not a boob. He was an incredibly bright guy and he knew how to steer public perception to get what he wanted in in the organization. And, uh, you know, he's he's still around i mean that that speaks volumes for the guy he's incredibly you know well spoken well educated and um he's that makes him uh, a perfect leader and foil for this kind of organization and for the comedy they had to you know make him they had to lampoon him a little bit so i mean and again it works in context of the way the story is being told yeah 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 Let's talk a little bit about camera because that gets us speaking of of the story tropes. We also have the Spike Lee camera now tropes. Uh, sure, we, yes. We've already talked about the double dolly and uh, he's done some he, he definitely I mean, right off the bat, we're looking at the camera. That's yeah, very right, much right. an early Spike thing. Chase Irvin. Chase Irvin is the DP on this particular film. And uh, which, you know, I, I don't think. uh I had seen anything else that uh, that Chase had done before, so I, it was a it was a new face for me for Spike, and I think this is the first time Chase has worked with Spike. I felt like Chase fit in very well with kind of the way that Spike typically worked with the camera. It was fluid, it was alive. There was a lot of uh, a lot of movement. There was a lot of like you said kind of looking into the camera whether it's as done as a POV. It, more specifically it's done as POV. You know, we get that when people are having conversation like right at the beginning when he's having his interview, the characters are all staring into the camera as we kind of cut back and forth. It's a very uh, personal way of kind of creating that and having it unfold. I also was really impressed with the way that Spike and Chase employed Dutch angles, particularly when all of a sudden we had Dutch angles as as Ron was talking to David Duke. And on each end of the phone conversation, we had kind of these Dutch angles. And then we in the editing, we had a split screen of them. And all of a sudden we have these kind of Dutch angles opposite each other with characters on opposite sides of the screen. It was a really creative, uh, unique way to to do that i think so too i i think uh it's i i love that we have chase Irvin on here and i love that we get to see how he adapts to spike lee and how and and spike lee's sort of vision of of how these cuts work because we know spike is such an activist editor right he's so in the edit uh and um how he uses the the material and what kind of how he he 
massages it. Uh, it's this film still felt very much like uh, a Spike Lee film. Um, I the only thing that I've seen of Chase Irvin is Beyonce's Lemonade, which I have to say, it's really good. <laughs> so. It's out there. He was camera on that one. Uh, it's done a lot of music videos. I guess I've seen a couple of other things of his uh, uh, in terms of um, uh, some other video shorts. And he did the promo video for whoisjohnmalkovich.com, which was a Squarespace short. I think it was a Super Bowl uh, with their Super Bowl ad. And it's uh, uh, so I didn't obviously have any sense that he was behind that when they did it. But I definitely remember the promotion. And John Malkovich is a weird guy. He needs yes. more websites. I think if anybody goes to Squarespace is home for him. Anyhow. <laughs> you know, just talking about that, I, I think that it's also good to just just nod to the writing, the fact that this wasn't necessarily something that, uh, as Spike Lee-ish, Lee, what did we decide we're going to call his films? Lee, Lee, not Lee-ish, that felt a little yeah, that tepid. Yeah, a little banal. Lethal? Yeah, Lee, I think we said Lee- lethal. Oh, I do like lethal. <laughs> It feels fresh. Feels like I haven't heard it before. That's right. Oh, that's really good. I like that. Let's do that. The film feels very much like a Spike Lee joint. It really fits kind of his tone and everything. But this is a film that he did not originate. It actually came from uh, the the screenwriting co-producing pair, uh, Charlie Wachtel and David Rabinowitz, who found the book, talked to Stallworth, wrote a spec script, and then pitched it to uh, Sean Reddick and Ray Mansfield, a couple of the producers, who brought it to QC Entertainment, who had been behind Get Out. They teamed with uh, Bloomhouse Productions and Jordan Peele uh, and his company, Monkey Paw Productions. And then they all brought in Spike Lee. So it's interesting how it feels like such a Spike Lee joint, but how it actually didn't start that way. And and it's weird because you look at these writers, Charlie and, and David, and I'm like, they have done next to nothing. How did they uh, have the, the connections to find? Uh, and I guess that's just how it works sometimes. When you have a great project and you're attached to it, it, it can really help you. And, uh, you know, um, Kevin Wilmot came on to do some of the the rewrites and everything. And Spike Lee, of course, um, did his own writing on it. And I think made for a really solid script that does feel very much like a Spike Lee joint. Scroll down to producers and you see 13 production credits from EPs to co-producers to produced by credits. And it's, it's there's a lot of people involved in this movie, to your point of getting this made. It reminds me of the movie that now I've forgotten which movie it was. We were so excited about the fact that it was actually a Hollywood dentist uh, oh, who right. ended up writing that script. Do you remember what movie that was? We were very uh, excited about it. Now I've forgotten what it was. I don't remember. Anyway, was it was, it's one of those stories. You never know what dentist chair you're going to be in and yep. get pitched. That's uh, very true. Very so. true. We haven't mentioned Adam Driver at all. Uh, do we just take it as uh, table stakes that he's fantastic? And- yeah, I mean, it's it's Adam Driver, and he's just always great. And again, he's one of those guys. I think we talked about it when we did our, our uh, kind of decade review show, our favorites of the yeah. decade, just talking about like people who have had an amazing decade. And he was one of the people that popped up because, I mean, geez, the people that he has worked with over the last 10 years, when really is is his career is the last 10 years. I mean, it's it's an amazing, amazing body of work. And to see him here in such a 
great role. It's uh, of course he's great, and and we didn't even mention John David Washington as Ron Stallworth. I mean, the cast here is pretty spectacular. Oh, totally. And uh, Paul Walter Hauser was uh, great. He's kind of a, a secondary character, plays one of the more idiotic of the idiots. Uh, I would but say he, the most idiotic of the idiots. Well, you know, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have him most recently. Uh, well, not most recently. I mean, his whole entire set of, of films. Uh, he is, whatever you think of the films, I think he is a, a fantastic addition to them from um, uh, most recent, I think, uh, uh, Richard Jewell. Yeah, that's great. Uh, but, in that film. Uh, He's he's in the TV series of Cobra Kai, the r- reboot of the it's the the Karate YouTube Kid, thing, yeah. right? Of Karate Kid, which is great. He was in a couple of Kimmy Schmitz, but also um, uh, I Tanya, a, a favorite around these parts. Um, so he's he, he's really great, and this movie is is no exception. He is a terrific character actor, and he's uh, going to be in Spike Lee's new movie, uh, The Five Hoods. So he's uh, clearly. Uh, kind of in and we'll kind of keep doing some more stuff with Spike. So that's yeah. great. It wasn't shot in Colorado Springs. So, so it'd be known. It was shot in New York, in Ossining, New York, which is on the water, which Colorado Springs is not. But still, I have to say, in terms of architecture and character of the town, looks pretty good. Uh, and I, you know, I always wonder about towns. Do they boast that that people feel like their town looks like a 1970s town from a different state? Is that something to be proud of? (laughs) You know, Colorado Springs right now is Olympic City. It's U.S. Olympic City. It's home to the United States Olympic Training Center. And that's a that's kind of a big deal right now. They actually have the trademark for Olympic City uh, as Colorado Springs. So but, you know, one thing that I that took me back more than anything, and this is something that I kind of made note of after the first time I see it right early in the film. uh, uh, Stallworth walks up to the precinct and looks up and he kind of pats his afro and he tilts up and you see that he's standing outside the Colorado Springs Police Department and the font is perfect. That font is everywhere in Colorado Springs. You drive down Colorado College, uh, down uh, Cascade Avenue, you see the college, you drive down all the civic buildings, you drive down to the Art Center, uh, you drive down to Bemis, uh, you drive, I mean, all of these places, they are, everything is written in that same type on buildings, all the building signage, and I loved it. It it made me feel, Austin, New York, I don't care, it made me feel like home. Oh. Yeah, it was great. It was that good. All from that sign, huh? All, all the, the signs. Sign, like, any time you look at yeah. a sign, they they nailed it. So hats off to Kurt Beach Production Design for for transforming Austin, New York by type alone. Nailed it. Mm, perfect. You know, one other little note that uh, doesn't really tie into Colorado Springs, although I, I definitely appreciate your point there, but this is something that I, I, I wanted to make sure that that we discussed that I thought was pretty interesting. Spike Lee, we saw, especially in Do the Right Thing, I, and I mean, our series has been fairly limited, just this is the third film and the end of it, and I'm, I'm sure this is a point that has come up in other Spike Lee films, is the, the relationship people have with police officers, and it's... I mean, do the right thing is a pretty negative view of police officers because of the actions they take to uh, to kill Radio Rahim at the end of the film and mm-hmm. how Lee bring. It, there's a lot of messaging at the end when you see all the names coming up of people who have died due to police violence. 
it's 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 a real thing and it's it's a very painful thing and it's a, a thing that i think is one of the things that lee probably um gets taken to task for because of the way that he positions his films this film is it is very kind of pro police and i thought it was a very interesting position i mean well one we have patrice who is very um very much against the police and actually both sides call the police pigs which i thought was actually an interesting viewpoint to see that both the black panthers and the kkk all call the cops pigs but here we have police officers doing their job and we have an an active police officer uh an african-american one with other white police officers, Jewish police officers, uh, different persuasions working to actually make things better. And yes, we have a representative bad cop, but I couldn't help but feel at the end when we see the the kind of the, the sting operation, essentially, that the police department sets up to get this bad cop out. I couldn't help but feel like this, w- was this a way for Spike Lee to kind of acknowledge, you know what? There are a lot of bad cops out there who are creating these situations and leading to these awful deaths at the hands of them that shouldn't ever have happened. But there are a lot of good cops out there who are fighting to do what's right. And it's it's a very difficult system. But I, I couldn't help but feel like there was some acknowledgement of that by the end. Did you feel anything like that? Or am I just reading into that? Because it's, it's such a jovial scene to happen toward the end of the, end of the well, film. Well, it is. And 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 at the same time, you might be. I, I don't know. I For me, the, it, it, the film hits a real low point when uh, we once again have the a police officer and a false arrest. Right. And they hit him in the stomach. They This is when, you know, he is actually stopping a bombing, but he's undercover or trying to stop a bombing, but he's undercover and two uniforms come up and they uh, arrest him. They throw him on the ground. And and that, um, for me, was was just such a low point in the experience of being a police officer, being a black police officer, being the first black police officer in Colorado Springs, like all, all of those elements, I think. More than anything else, I get the sense that that um, at least the worldview of this film is that it is incredibly complex yeah. uh, th- that as as human beings learn how to figure out and and navigate these these roads uh, of of racial sort of understanding uh, on the police force, beyond the police force and we haven't solved it yet. Uh, I I don't think I got a sense of atonement necessarily, or or any sort of messaging that he was trying to embrace a a, a more pro police attitude. I think he was he was telling the story from my my perspective. He was just telling the story as it happened to this guy, and yeah, I think he I think he nailed the complexity of the universe that this guy was living in. Well, I think complexity is definitely a, a good way to describe it. I think that that actually works because I do feel you have that in the conversations between Patrice and Ron when he's mm-hmm. trying to say, you know what, you can be a good cop and trying to fix the system from the inside out. Um, but it is it's it's all of these once you once you create a system with a structure, it becomes complex because now yeah. there are things coming at it from different sides that don't necessarily fit. And that's what all of this is about. And I, I think it just it's I, I think that it all 
works. It's just, it does feel very jovial at the end all of a sudden. But I felt like, you know, they they wanted to get a little bit more of a spin on the happy ending there. So I end up not having any issues with it. I think it actually works in context of the story being told. I have two points on Flip, on on Driver's character. Okay. Um, the first one is, look how beautiful his parallel is, right? He gets in because he's a white guy and he's never associated with his Jewishness. But over the course of the his experience in uh, this undercover operation, he becomes essentially Jewish, right? He becomes aware of, and that beautiful scene where he's sitting with Ron saying, you know, I just, I, I never thought about it before, and now it's all I think about. Uh, you know, I never went to a bar mitzvah, I never had a bar mitzvah, but now all of those things, those parts of my identity, now that I see how much people hate those parts of me, it's all I can think about. That's yeah. a really unique bit of parallelism that Ron comes in, he's black, and that is the first thing you see about him it is who he is. It's his identity. Uh, and he has to essentially uh, shed a lot of that to fit in and become part of this. You know, how much does he keep? How much does he adapt? Uh, and I, I think that is a really powerful counter message to Driver who comes in. Nobody questions who he is because of what he looks like until he is forced by his relationship with Ron to think about that stuff. Right. I think that was really powerful. My my question about the end to you, though, related to all of this is the four of them are sitting in the room and they are asked to throw away all of their research. And that happened. Uh, so then we have Ron uh, decide to stick around as a, a police officer. And that has been an issue of contention. Did you find that believable? Did you find that whole sequence uh, believable? Um, how did it, how did it, had that part hit you? No, I mean, I, I, I totally bought into that because I mean, you know, you're not, I don't think people necessarily are going to quit over that. Sure. You might be frustrated that this is how the system works, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to keep going out and doing your job. You know, I mean, you're a cop, you're, your goal is to get out there and do what's right. They did what's right. Okay, so the department is going to shut them up and they can't really talk about it at all. They've got to destroy the evidence, all that sort of stuff. But still, they did what's right. And now it's time to go out and do something else that's right. So yes, it's frustrating, but at the same time, I believed it. Yeah, I did too. I, I actually think it was well blocked too. The fact that it was Driver's character who says this is BS and he stands up and walks out. I think his act of walking out uh, was actually a, a, a nice callback to the way he he wanted to distance himself from the operation earlier in the film. That he was so frustrated he couldn't sit still at the end of the movie showed that he had become really part of the team and uh, that he felt strongly about taking on a more activist role in the police force and doing this stuff. Um, it, it was, I, I think it was really interesting. One more nod to the book. Um, Stallworth says, you know, when uh, Flip was asked to take on the role of, uh, you know, the the local chapter head of the Ku Klux Klan, as yeah. is talked about in the movie, he makes a much bigger deal about the fact that the two of them, the two Ron Stallworths, went to the chain of command and really advocated for that. They thought that they could pull it off a long-term deep cover wow. investigation as head of the Colorado Springs chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. They, they oh, really wanted that to happen and they thought they could do it together uh, as voice and the body. That oh is 
stunning. That is audacious. Uh, and and so I think that that last scene it doesn't really play up the fact that they were they were quite so invested in it. Uh, but I, I think it it does at least show some unity in their frustration. Jeez. Um, so it's amazing, crazy, yeah. yeah. Terrence Blanchard is on the music. It's great music. The the thing that really stuck out to me was he actually we we get another Prince song at the end, live club version of Prince singing Mary, which is perfect. <laughs> well, very very uh much one of the regular team members yeah. for Spike Lee. He's done quite a number of his films. Right. We we talked about him on Inside Man. Uh, we probably did, and we, uh, we may have. not have mentioned him on Bamboozled, but he certainly did that one as well. Yeah, we should have. We should have regrets. Yeah. Oh, dear. Andy, Ugh. I don't know how we... Do we need a, a part two of this show to get through awards? <laughs> there were certainly a lot of uh, uh, a lot of awards and nominations for this. 43 wins, 206 other nominations. Don't worry... <laughs> I'm not reading them all. I'm just going to hit a few key ones. Uh, at the Oscars, this is where Spike Lee won his Oscar. He won along with his co-writers for the Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture, lost to Green Book. Quite a bit of uh, contention over that win there. Adam Driver was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Mahershala Ali for Green Book. Uh, Best Director, Spike Lee was nominated, but lost to Alfonso Cuaron for Roma. This is another controversial one. Best film editing. Bohemian Rhapsody took the editing award, and I'm not quite sure why. This film, I think, in fact, I think all the other nominees were probably better than Bohemian Rhapsody, but what am I, who, who am I to say? And last but not least, uh, the original score by Blanchard was nominated, but it lost to Black Panther, which was a great win. Over at the That's AFI. That's incredibly frustrating, Andy. Can I just interject? All of these are incredibly frustrating on this watch of the film. I don't think all of them are. I, I'm thrilled the Black Panther one. I thought that was a fantastic score. So I'm I'm happy with that one. Um I I'm okay with Alfonso Cuaron winning best director, um, honestly, but I personally would have picked Spike Lee. But if there is a, somebody who I think could have beaten it, I, I'm okay with it being Cuaron. Um hmm. the the rest of them are a little more frustrating. Yeah. Um the uh let's see, I'm gonna skip through some of these, the Cannes Film Festival, Spike Lee did win the grand prize of the jury. He has also um, won a special mention from the prize of the ecumenical jury. And as far as the Palm d'Or over the Cannes uh, Film Festival, his film lost to Shoplifters, which is a pretty spectacular film. I really do <laughs> love Shoplifters. Um, I, I'm going to skip a bunch of these other ones. I just want to run through the ones where Spike Lee won for Best Director. I wish I could say he won more, but he did win these. Uh, some of them don't sound... This first one, particularly, doesn't sound very <laughs> thrilling. But hey, he won See it. See if you can punch it up. See if you can punch it up. How would this you deliver is one it to really make it thrilling? Every filmmaker really dreams of this award. <laughs> this is the one. It is From the, the AA, little children. It's right. It's right. Forget the Oscars. This is the AARP Movies for Grownups Award. <laughs> That's right. Spike Lee won Best Director from them. He also won from the Chicago Independent Film Critics Circle, the Nevada Film Critics Society, the San Francisco Film Critics Circle, and the St. Louis Film Critics Association. So the critics really did seem to feel that Spike Lee's direction was winning worthy. So, yes. so there you go. And how, pray tell, did it do at the box office? 
Well, Spike's budget was set at $15 million for this project, which is just a hair higher in today's dollars, $15.3 million. It was just a year and a half ago, after all. The movie opened August 10th, 2018, opposite The Meg, one of your favorites, Slender Man, Crazy Rich Asians, and A Prayer Before Dawn. This landed in spot number four to start behind The Meg, Mission Impossible Fallout in its third week, and Christopher Robin in its second. It never did climb higher than that at the box office, but the movie still did really well for itself, earning $49.3 million domestically and $44.1 million internationally for a total adjusted gross of $95.3 million. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $592,000, earning about as much profit as Do the Right Thing did just over 30 years ago. Well, I wish that uh, I wish that it had a little bit more... Uh, boost in the box office than that. I would have liked to have seen it. Uh, I, I regret Truly. a little bit seeing the Meg <laughs> uh, just in terms of voting with my dollars. I, I did see Black Klansman. I just saw the Meg first. I'm sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> it's just who I am. It's on you. Uh, it's on me. Spike I, is looking at you and judging you. Pushed it over the edge. That's right. Uh, you know, this this film is uh, my, uh, I think my rating for it has improved after investigating it. I, it's, this was, um, it, it, I found myself as, I, I think maybe due to the momentum of watching the last two Spike Lee films leading into this, I feel like I'm in a real Spike pro Spike Lee um, phase right now. He is just... Uh, truly made it into, uh, you know, the vaunted ranks of Pete's favorite filmmakers. Uh, I, I just, I've, I've always liked Spike Lee, but uh, seeing how intentional he is and how precise he is with where he puts the things that he is passionate about and where he puts the narrative elements that he is angry about and how he communicates those things, I, I think they're just adventurous. And um, I really find myself connecting with with this film in that regard personally what a delightful series this has been this film i when i saw this i was like that film is for me the the peak of spike lee at his filmmaking prowess it is all of the things that work the best in the way spike lee constructs his films and tells his stories it is done in a, a really interesting biopic that i think allowed him to kind of explore a variety of the different tones that he that he likes it allowed the message to come through loud and clear like everything about it worked on a level that just absolutely made sense to me. So, yeah, this, I, I mean, I love the films that we have talked about on this uh, series this year. And uh, what this has really done for me, it has given me a drive to actually, I mean, you know me and my lists. I, mm -hmm. I love going through and looking at filmmakers uh, chronologically, just kind of watching through their projects, filmmakers or actors or whoever it is. This is one where I'm like, you know, I, Spike Lee's done some really interesting stuff. And certainly, you know, his attitude at times can be a little much for me. I think he can be a little uh, aggressive in in getting his opinions out there. But at the same time, like when you watch these films, it's like, I get it. I understand why he feels that way. And as an artist, he's he's passionate about his views and is pushing them out there. And I, I've seen far too few of his films. And now after looking at these again, I'm like, I need to really jump in and just do a deep dive and go through his films chronologically, watch all of his stuff and really just explore what he's doing. Cause I think he's a filmmaker who's got a lot of, a lot of interesting things to say. That being said, 
I'm not going to rewatch Old Boy. That was garbage. <laughs> well, and on that point, I'm so glad we finished this series uh, of Spike Lee's three best films. Tune in for TNR 2021 when we do all of Spike Lee's crap. <laughs> there it is. There I it is. say we head over and rank it, Andy. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes, you'll see the word flickchart. You just have to tap it. And when you do that, it should take you straight to the flickchart catalog to this movie where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Black Klansman or Mad Max. Black Klansman. Black Klansman for me. Black Klansman or Raise the Red Lantern. (laughs) <laughs> you first. Black Klansman. <laughs> Me too. Ah, oh, what a day. You were worried. Black Klansman or Creed? Uh, Black Klansman. Black Klansman for me as well. Black Klansman or Black Hawk Down? Black Klansman. Black Klansman. Black Klansman or Casablanca? Casablanca. <sighs> Andy, seriously, yeah, Casablanca. Yep. Black Klansman or Inception? Inception for Inception. me. Inception. Black Klansman or Star Trek 2009? Black Klansman. Black Klansman for me, too. Black Klansman or Raiders of the Lost Ark? Has to be Raiders. (laughs) It's Raiders. Come on. (laughs) Black Klansman did really well for itself. Landed in spot 23 on our chart. 23 out of 444 films that we have talked about, which puts it at 95%. Pretty high. Wow. That's pretty great. How to do on your list? It did uh, a little bit better. It landed in spot 127 out of 4303, so a 97% on my own chart. Man, uh, it landed for me. Uh, it ran up against a, a couple that were particularly difficult. Uh, it, it ran into Edge of Tomorrow, Ooh, uh, which yeah. was a tough one. Um, uh, it, it ran into, uh, <laughs> you know, it ran into the rundown which I found myself stopping that's, on. I love a, the rundown a lot. A Don't really worry. That's a fun movie. That's a I, really I chose Black Klansman, yeah, yeah. but man, the rundown is great. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's uh, one it, that's worth talking about on the show. Totally, totally. We're going to do, we need to do the Rock series. Uh, <laughs> even the Tooth Fairy. Okay. As long as we include the Rock. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Welcome the to rock the Rock series. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it ended up at uh, 57 out of uh, 1440 on my chart. And that takes it to a 96%. If I am to go by the algorithm for the next or letterboxd.com slash the next reel, this should be a five-star film. This was a four and a half star film already ranked, and I am going to uh, I'm gonna bump it up and make it a five-star film, Andy. I had that much fun this time around. This uh, was a five-star film and a heart for me when I saw it the first time, and it was even more so uh, this time. I just, I really feel like this is Spike Lee showing a lot of growth as a filmmaker, and the way that he constructs and tells his stories, I think, is incredibly effective. So absolutely five-star and a heart for me. That makes this series possibly one of our strongest series that we have covered, because every film is five star and a heart from both of us again 2021 spike lee trash yeah i think if you throw inside man into the mix which we've covered covered yeah. that would drop it down because that i think was that was four not a stars star and a heart from both of yeah. us so. well i love it 
Uh, this has been a great experience. I love having movie after movie that we like. And this is coming off of the film noir series, Andy. What a run of Phil, you mean solid French crime films. Yeah, French crime, whatever. Film whatever. noir. Yeah, potato, potato. Uh, it, what a great run of movies we've had uh, over the last Truly. couple of months. This has been great. Now, where do we go from here? Should I be nervous? I This is going to be a series that I'm very much looking forward to. Another one with a lot of exciting films. This is adaptations of the works of Jean Le Carré. We're looking at Martin Ritz, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold from 1965, George Roy Hill's The Little Drummer Girl from 1984, and we're ending on the recent adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by Thomas Alfredson from 2011. Oh, uh, you know, I have strong... Of memories of these. I hope they live up to them. It's been a long time. I have never seen The Little Drummer Girl, so that is one I'm very curious about. No, not that one, but Spy Who Came In From The Cold and oh, Tinker so Tailor good. Soldier yeah. Spy, I have uh, pretty strong memories of, so I'm... Uh, oof. Yep. Here's hoping. Good stuff. Good stuff. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon sometimes doeth. It sometimes does. And movies like this on Amazon, when you go to the bottom of the barrel, you know what you're going to find there, Andy? Angry people. That's right. You find the bottom of the barrel. (laughs) And so we took a little dalliance over to Common Sense Media to see if the kids had reviewed this. And you know what you find over there, Andy? Awesomeness. Hope and understanding. That's right. The kids are our future. Now, I stayed there. I believe that the children are our future. Pete. I do, too. And you went back to Amazon, and I'm dying to know why. Right. Well, I guess I'll kick it off then. Michael <laughs> T. Martins gave it one star and said, I fell asleep. Maybe it was the Chardonnay. <laughs> okay. All right. That's good. That's the best one-star <laughs> review that there was. <laughs> <laughs> Two people actually did find it helpful. That's good to oh, know. It's perfect. It's yeah. just perfect. Uh, okay. Well, I've got, um, I, there are so many to choose from over here. Uh, I'll just say the overall uh, tone of these reviews is so great. And so it's just, it warms your heart. I'm going to go with a, uh, with I'm the only one who writes, watch this film. Black Klansman is just a masterpiece. The acting is amazing, and you can see Washington act at a great level, just like his father, Denzel. I was extremely happy to see teen icon Topher Grace, that 70s show, on the big screen. Topher nails his role as David Duke, the leader of the KKK, whom is being played for played for a chump by an African-American pretending to be a Klan member. Star Wars's Adam Driver plays the part of Washington's alter ego in that he goes to the KKK meetings while he's hiding the fact that he's Jewish. It's a powerful look into racism and how it needs to stop. Go watch this movie. This review, as that was a five-star review, in case you were wondering. I love it. Star Wars's Adam Driver, Andy. Mm. 
I think we need to refer to him that way going forward. <laughs> Star Wars is Adam Driver was also in this movie. I will permanently can we do refer that? to can him we make that, that way. canon. Excellent. Yes. Star Excellent. Wars is Adam Driver. That's right. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>